0: All right, this uh, Reformation Sunday, we are going to be taking a look at Ezekiel 37, the first 14 verses. Let me read that. Ezekiel 37, one of the major prophets, of course. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord So I prophesied as, I was, as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then He said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are clean cut off. Therefore Prophesy. The Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. O our God, indeed, there is none but You who gives life. All the world strives after one thing or another. They strive for hope. They strive for justice. They strive for peace. They strive for life. Religions anguish. Religions struggle. Religions pray. But there is no mediator between God and man but the man, Christ Jesus. It's not by works. It's not by human effort. It's by faith. Jesus is the true Savior. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And though we die yet shall we live if we are in Christ. There shall be someday this great army, the sons of God and daughters of God, and we rejoice even now in the hope that we have, for we have a hope, though we live in these mortal bodies of death, though we are sinners, yet because we believe in Christ, because we know we have eternal salvation, we do hope. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I need to take off this coat. It is too warm up here. There. Well, we have seen during the years when Joseph was in Egypt that the lands of Egypt and the lands of Canaan languished, is the word used, languished under a famine. So we know what that looks like. The land was essentially dead. It produced no harvest, nothing to sustain life. It was just, we've seen this too often right in Georgia, this dry, cracked earth that produces nothing, just dust and weeds. It was dead earth in those days, threatening human death. It was a real crisis. We've seen that. Now our text today in the prophecy of Ezekiel Is a vision of another death, not a death from famine, for this vision was of a valley of death, a valley full of bones, bones that were very dry. These were bodies that had been there for a long, long time, many years. Now, Ezekiel, as you may well know, was a prophet, and he was a priest as well. And he spent most of his adult life actually in exile in Babylon. He had been exiled along with 18-year-old King Jehoiachin in 597 B.C. Now, the exile of Judah, which was the southern kingdom, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, in contrast to the northern ten, they had been exiled many years before that. But the southern tribes, the exile began in 605, and the prophet Daniel was one of those first ones taken out. And it continued on when, uh, until 586, 587, when Jerusalem was uh, sacked and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. So God called this particular prophet, Ezekiel, to prophesy this, to declare God's word both to the people already in exile in Babylon but also to the people remaining, who who still remained in Judah uh, during these number of years. And notice that he writes, The Lord brought me out in the Spirit. The Lord in the Spirit took him to this place and gave him this vision, he says, concerning Israel, concerning Israel's present, their present circumstances, but certainly their past as well, and their future. Now, for many years, Israel had been, and I say Israel, I really mean Israel and Judah, they had been essentially dead to the Lord. Not physically dead, of course, but spiritually dead, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord for years and years and years, for generations, really. They had broken His covenant. They had served other gods. On and on and on, it had gone. Let's go back in time about 800 years. And about 800 years before that, Joshua had led Israel across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. We remember it was after four centuries of residency, much of that as slaves, in the land of Egypt. Of course, Joseph is the beginning of that time, of course. We've been there. It also followed four decades of wandering in the wilderness led by the great Moses. And so the land they entered, the land of Canaan, was the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to dwell with His people. For God had made a promise. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. And so because the land was a gift from God, it was a matter of His dwelling with His people attached to its residency was the stipulation of faithfulness and obedience, okay? They had no moral or uh, religious autonomy as God's people. They couldn't do whatever they pleased. That's how the nations lived. They were God's holy people. They were to keep His commandments. In fact, back in Genesis 17... We read, the whole land of Canaan, where you now, where you are now as an alien, I'll give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. For generations to come, for all of your history, they were bound by God's covenant. They were required to keep its commands, keep its laws, practice its ceremonies, and so forth. Israel must worship God alone, Jehovah alone. They couldn't be like the nations worshiping after all these other gods. They were monotheists. They were to worship the true God alone. And so disobedience and faithlessness would threaten their occupation of the land, something perhaps modern-day Israel doesn't understand. But the Lord made this clear to none other than King Solomon when on the occasion of the dedication of the first temple, which Solomon, the son of David, built in Jerusalem. And on that occasion, the Lord said to Solomon, As for you, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe all my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. But yet, we read the historical books of the Old Testament, and in chapter after chapter, in all the books, Israel was what? Stiff necked and rebellious, serving other gods, disobedient to God. And from the days of the judges, they were a people who indeed did what was right in their own eyes. And so through the prophets, God informed the people that they would be cast out of the land as he had, in fact, threatened them. They had broken his covenant. Even in spite, if you're familiar with the great reforms of Josiah, even in spite of the renewal of the covenant under Josiah, and, and the reforms under Josiah, which were great indeed, in spite of those things, yet they would be cast out. They weren't sufficient to turn away from the wrath of God because Jeremiah declared that they had, in turn to, that they had returned to the Lord actually in pretense, not in truth. Not with a whole heart, but in pretense. It's a warning to us today. We must serve the Lord God with our whole heart, love Him above all, above all things. Die to self and love our neighbor as ourself. We seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. He is our sole love. We love not the world. We serve not the world. We are aliens and strangers. We walk as pilgrims. He is our first love. We must not ever lose that first love. We must serve Him with our whole heart, not in pretense, not in human traditions, not according to the culture around us, but according to biblical commands and principles. And so the matter was settled in the mind of the Lord. The people would, in fact, be removed from the land as Adam and Eve were removed from God's land many years before that, as they were rejected from the Garden of Eden, so were God's people now, again, rejected from this new Garden of Eden. And this was a matter of God's righteous judgment against unfaithful sinners. It wasn't bad things happening to good people. It was God's righteous judgment against sinners. And yet we need to know that Ezekiel, as the, the prophet presented or declared his prophecy to the people is not a book of hopelessness and despair it's not a book of rejection rejecting god's people it's above all a book of hope and promise it's a book in fact a prophecy declaring that god will have a people for himself god will dwell with his people he will fulfill his promises chapters 36 and 37 Are wonderful chapters I turn to them all the time because they are the promise of a new covenant as in Jeremiah 31 I will make a new covenant with you beautiful promises and so the Lord took Ezekiel to this valley of dry bones he brought me out I I can't imagine how this went you know he brought me out and set me down in this valley and, and and picture this in your mind. Get start thinking about this. Maybe close your eyes and think about this grotesque and horrific sight. This valley because these weren't animal bones. That's perhaps gross enough. We used to have a cats that would bring, you know, semi mostly slain animals ripped apart, shredded as a gift to us. Don't figure that one out. But anyway, um Think about these bones, this this grotesque sight. Many many bones, human bones, dead men's bones. It's as if a, as it, it's as if a great war had been fought in that valley, a mighty battle and everyone was slain. Think about Gettysburg for example. That terrible war where I didn't look it up how many but hundreds and hundreds were slain and the bodies were the the, the land was filled with these bodies. And yet here In this valley, they were never buried. Everywhere the prophet looked, there was the repulsive sight of death. No life at all. In fact, the sun over the years had beat down on these bones and they they were all dried up. They were brittle as a dried stick which breaks with that sharp crack when it snapped. And so, again, think about this in your mind's eye. Imagine. Imagine you're there and God leads him around this valley to view it from different vantage points. And there's silence. Think of the emotion, the horror, the depression. Death is depressing. Human bones, a valley full of human bones. And then, breaking the silence, the Lord asking this question, maybe a strange question. Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Well, today we might answer, you know, we live in the 21st century, the age of technology. We have brilliant computer programmers. Surely they can come up with some magic. To make these bones live. We have engineers. Surely they can come up with something. We have deep thinking philosophers. Books have been written. Maybe we could do something. No. None of those. None of those. There's no hope in that. All the king's horses and all the king's men. Right? Couldn't put Humpty back together again. But God. But God gives life. And Ezekiel did not doubt for a moment the power of God to intervene and do something amazing. And so he said, oh, Lord God, you know, you know. Hannah, the mother of Samuel, once said, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, the grave. And raises up. And so the Lord said to Ezekiel, Prophesy. Prophesy to these bones. He said, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And the prophet obeyed. The prophet obeyed the command. He did as as God said. And he prophesied to these dead, dry, brittle, lifeless Bones. And again, we're back at that scene. We're imagining. We're thinking. We're watching. And we're out on a walk. We happen upon that scene. We look down and see this prophet, this man, speaking to this valley full of bones. Lifeless bones. And some would think, what a fool he's wasting his time mere talk what will mere talk do we need human ingenuity we need the engineer we need the computer programmer we need the best of our technical technological knowledge and ability what good will mere talk do and yet Paul would say later on it pleased God through the folly of of what we preach to save those who believe. And before Ezekiel's eyes, the impossible happened. This noise, this rattling, and the bones started coming together. And then we read that ligaments were put in place and muscles were put in place. Skin was given to cover the bones, and yet there was no breath in those bodies, no heartbeat, no pulse, no brain waves. And so the Lord said, Prophesy. I emphasize that word, prophesy, prophesy to the breath. And these formerly lifeless bones became living beings, an exceedingly great army. The word of the Lord, the prophesying of the Lord. Well, in 535 BC, King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire issued a decree authorizing the Jews to return to, the, to their homeland, and they could rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. And so there was a sound and a rattling. And they were sent away back to Jerusalem with gifts silver and gold and livestock, these temple treasures which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the city. And so the bones were coming together, and the the sinews were added, and the skin was added. And then finally the breath of life came into this body. The people of Israel, as Ezra and Nehemiah uh, renewed the covenant, pledging faithfulness to the Lord God, there was a reformation in the 6th century B.C. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. The Lord indeed restored His people to His land. And yet, this prophecy looks to an even greater fulfillment. It doesn't stop there. That's not really what it's considering. It looks to a greater fulfillment beyond the 6th century And Matthew Henry speaks of a most lively representation of a threefold resurrection. Let's talk about those three things. The first is the resurrection of souls from the death of sin to the life of righteousness. You may not know this, but in fact, many Jews had good, prosperous lives in in Babylon. They were not hurting. They were healthy. Some were wealthy. But they were still cut off from the land of god and from the presence of god they were covenantally dry as they're dead as dry brittle bones they were estranged from the source of life because sin is death and by nature we are estranged from god so it makes me ask what about you what about us you know are you deceived into thinking that because things are well with you the economy is strong the kids are good, you know, you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, everything's good, nice home, you're comfortable, that's all okay with you, when in fact you're estranged from God, you're not in Christ, you're not believing the gospel. Do you not know that apart from Christ, you are dead, and God's wrath hangs upon you, God's judgment? And if you die, you shall be cast into the eternal lake of fire, you shall be ever cut, forever cut off from Him? The gospel says, repent, believe the gospel, trust in Christ, and live. He is the resurrection and the life. There is a resurrection from death for those who trust in Christ. He said, I tell you the truth. A time is coming and and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And so notice the prophet Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so God said in verse 14 to Israel and to us, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. Something you need to know is the the, the word spirit and breath are the same word in Hebrew, ruach. So there's a play on words there. I will put my spirit in you and you will live as the breath comes upon the slain. So even as Christ was made alive by the spirit, so are we who believe made alive by the spirit as we call upon God for salvation. Jesus said, "I am the resurrection and the life." He who believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes, lives and believes in Me shall never die. Is there anyone here outside of Christ? Do you hear now the voice of the shepherd calling? Calling to the sheep, come! Come, O sick and wounded! Come, O sinner! Come, O, o who's depraved and, and hopeless! Come to Me! Come to Me! And you shall live, because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The second resurrection is the resurrection of the gospel church. And for this reason, I'm preaching this sermon on Reformation Sunday, because there are times in the history when the true church, it seems to have all but disappeared, Israel in Egypt, Judah in Babylon, certainly the church in the Middle Ages prior to the Reformation, the Protestant church, in fact, in America prior to that Great Awakening under the ministry of men like Whitfield and Edwards, and even now, even now in our United States, beloved, the church is languishing. It is. We are really like Laodicea. We think we are rich and prosperous. We have big buildings. We may have programs. We have lots of people. But we are lukewarm. And I believe Jesus is saying to the American church largely that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Doctrine, solid biblical teaching has been replaced by emotion. Worship has often been replaced by entertainment. Preaching the Word has been replaced by pop psychology and worldly pursuits. Spiritual depth and maturity has been replaced by financial strength. Evangelical mission has been replaced by building construction. Prayer has been replaced by slick marketing campaigns. And sola scriptura has been cast aside for cultural assimilation. Are we not languishing? Is there not a famine in our land, even in the church today? Are we not languishing? But Ezekiel's prophecy reveals God's faithfulness. I will do it declares the Lord, I will do it. The word of the Father and the word of Jesus is too. I will, I will, I will. Notice the I wills of God in this prophecy. I will bring you into the land. I will put my spirit within you. I will take the people of Israel from the nations. I will gather them. I will make of them one nation. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And what did Jesus say? I will build my church. Not through slick marketing campaigns. Not through fancy buildings. Not through entertainment. Through the preaching of this word. What did did God say? Prophesy. Prophesy to these bones. Preach the word. Declare the word. And so in Acts, everywhere the apostles went, to and fro, to every country every city what did they do they preached the word they proclaimed the kingdom of God they preached Jesus for example just one chapter 19 Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God it actually continued on for then for two years so all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord And so Reformation comes through preaching and teaching the Word of God, proclaiming the Kingdom of Jesus. It began in the 16th century, October 31st, 1517, with the simplest of acts, uh, a benign act, I mean, just posting 95 propositions on a church door, just, it was a place where they tacked different things to think about and... 95 theses at a church door just like sending an email today. (laughs) And yet it sparked the Reformation. And it continued as pulpits in Europe were aflame with the gospel of Christ in Germany, Switzerland, England, Scotland. And it continued even into America uh, as the pilgrims came over, the, uh, it, the, it was said of the purists, it was, it was in the pulpit that they offered their greatest assault on the world system, the flesh, and the devil. Because through the foolishness of preaching, God saves those who believe. Through prophesying, through prophesying, declaring the word, God raises the dead. Do you believe that? You know, as in the first century, in the days of Claudius, there has been a great famine over all the world, a spiritual famine. The nations have languished under idol worship and false gods, false religion. But the Holy, I tell you, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is doing a remarkable work in the nations around the world in these days the days in which we're living it's something like a first century phenomenon as the holy spirit is giving life to these dry brittle bones in many countries in africa in india in china in places like that the church is growing at a staggering rate Do you know that around the world in total, the church is growing at a rate of 89,000 converts every day? Today, 89,000 people will be converted according to statistics that we read. And that means 27,000 churches of 100 members must be planted every month. Think about that, to keep up with that church growth. I will do it, says the Lord. And so when I am able to travel to train pastors, I do one thing. I teach the Word. And I train pastors to teach the Word, how to teach the Word. And it's that Word that is still turning the nations upside down. And it's producing true reformation as pastors learn how to avoid syncretism and legalism and the snare of the health and wealth gospel, which has permeated every nation, it seems. They embrace the pure doctrine of the word. They hear the word of God, and they think or say, God said it, I believe it. It's amazing. It's incredible. Reformation is coming. Do you know which continent right now has the highest percentage of evangelical believers which continent in the world right now has the highest percentage of evangelical north america of course right no africa africa the us is uh, north america second right no followed by asia third is latin america north america is only fourth Of all the continents. Fourth, Europe has a mere 3.3% evangelical Christians, and North America, we are moving in that direction quickly. The U.S. is in desperate need of a new Reformation, but that will only happen through the foolishness of preaching the Word of God combined with fervent, kingdom oriented prayer. You know, as we are Close by God's grace and per His will, as we are close to calling a new pastor, we, our church, must have a solid commitment to preaching and teaching the Word and to prayer. We must have a firm commitment to proclaiming the kingdom of God. You know, you know that phrase, a shot heard round the world? It refers to the opening shot of the Battle of Kent Concord in 1775 that began the Revolutionary War. But it's also sometimes used to refer to the assassination of, of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1914, which began World War I. While well, Luther's 95 Theses were essentially that shot, offend, effectively, that was heard around the world. What that will, what that will be in, in our time, I really don't know. I don't know that that shot has yet been fired. But I do not know that it's going to involve preaching the Word of God and prayer. And so we must be careful to have a kingdom-only oriented ministry. We must avoid everything that is worldly and secular. We, as Grace Covenant Church, must be faithful to the Word, faithful to to the commands of God, faithful to the Word of God. So let me just throw this out for your consideration. Christmas is coming. Let us be careful to avoid any and all cultural assimilation and the traditions of men. To pursue Reformation, there must be nothing impure in our worship, nothing impure in our doctrine. That's all I'll say. Take that home and think about it and pray about it. Thirdly, quickly, is I know we're getting short and we have the Lord's Supper coming, but resurrection of the body, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will, will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. For when... The perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal body puts on the immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over death is only through preaching the Lord Jesus Christ, His kingdom, His gospel, because only He gives life. And so if that were not the case, this vision would be even a bit of a lie. But it is true because Christ gives life. And there is a land, dear ones, into which the Lord will bring His people. Revelation 21 speaks about a new earth and a new heaven, the, the, the place where God will eternally dwell with His people. You know, C.S. Lewis said, this life is only shadows. We don't see all that God is doing. Sometimes we do. A lot of times we don't. But God is at work. Death does not have the final word. The famine is not the final word. God is bringing life to the nations. I'm privileged to see even a small glimpse of that as I watch the Word of God bringing life to dead, dry bones. We need it here in the United States. And so we must labor faithfully knowing that Jesus raises the dead. Knowing that he is building his church. He has made a promise. I will do it. Let's declare the word of God. Let us pray kingdom prayers. Let us pray for another reformation, dear ones. And let it begin soon. Oh Lord God, we plead with you. May it begin soon. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our bringing men's traditions and cultural ways into worship. Forgive us of our wandering. Forgive us of our callousness, our indifference. Forgive us of, of seeking other methods rather than just the word, and, the word of God and prayer and the Lord's Supper. These are the means of grace. We sometimes get discouraged forgetting that Jesus will build His church, but He shall and He will and He is. And we praise God for 89,000 men and women and children who will be resurrected to new life today throughout the world. It amazes us. It staggers us. And so we labor. We must labor. In Jesus' name, amen.